0: Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Jawad. Ali Jawad is a senior group leader at the Center for Neuroplasticity and Brain Disorders at the Nanke Institute in Warsaw, Poland. He's heading the research group Translational Research and Neuropsychiatric Disorders, called the TREND Lab for short. He's also an adjunct professor of neurology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. Thank you very much, Ollie, for joining us on the Think Peace podcast. It's such an honor to have you here. So as we get started with our conversation, could you give our listeners a little bit of background Of what got you interested in the field of trauma and epigenetics, what was the journey that led you to this work that you're doing today?
1: Thank you. Thanks, lot. It's it's definitely a pleasure and an honor, actually, to uh, to be present in this forum together with you. So about trauma, I think, you know, so usually I get questions like, what got you into neuroscience? And then you could always say, I was fascinated by neuroscience. I mean, now I would say that actually, if you think about trauma, I mean, it's also something you know, of course, very relevant, like from a humanitarian perspective, but also very intriguing. And what I learned, like, you know, during my childhood, like, you know, later on during the teenage years, you know, through different experiences is that the way I would react to a traumatic situation would be very much dictated by how I was feeling in general. And then at the same time, one experience, which was somehow stressful, you know, left at SMARG, would then shape whenever I would encounter a similar experience later on. And that had me like, you know, look at these things, not only from like a very, you know, personal point of view, but also from a very like, you know, academic point of view. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little example that, you know, so so I had like a neurological illness when I was like 10, 9, 10 years old. I ended up in the hospital. I saw like, you know, how my parents were really worried for me. And in the beginning, I also was. Right. But then at the same time, I was like, okay, you know, whatever is happening, it's happening. So let's start looking at things differently. Let's start looking at what's actually happening. And like, you know, and then like when I became more curious about it, it was somehow less stressful, you know. Um, And then similarly, like, you know, I started noticing other people and I I saw that they would react differently to a situation which could be traumatic. You know, there would be uh, differences even from people coming from the same family. And then, of course, like the contribution of prior experiences. So then, like, you know, this this was something that stayed with me over time. I went to med school. And then when I was training in neuropsychiatry, I actually ended up working on a project about post-traumatic stress disorder, like a large-scale study involving veterans. And then we started noticing, again, similarly, that, you know, not everyone who experiences trauma develops PTSD. And then, like, there are people who develop PTSD, and then they have, like, many manifestations which go beyond, you know, the psychological manifestations. We see that they have changes in their metabolism. They have, like, more risk of cardiovascular illnesses. So that actually, you know, started to somehow fit together in the sense that trauma actually is something very holistic. It is something which leaves its mark in our epigenome, which is something which leaves its mark in in different body systems. And then at the same time, when I when I got further involved into the heritability of trauma, it just, like, you know, now now it, it, it feels like, you know, something which has applications and relevance to each and every segment, you know, starting from an individual to the society. That, that's how I'd sum it up. You
0: know, that's really fascinating, Ali, because you were talking about a number of systems and layers. So you were talking about seeing how individuals' experiences can manifest in behaviors and health outcomes in in different types of structures. Could you talk a little bit about the intersection of neuroscience and trauma and how as you mentioned there were certain physical, you know, psychological, different aspects that seemed to be affected. Could you just for kind of a basic explanation of how those things work with the brain and the nervous system and our interaction with our environment and what that looks like from a neuroscience standpoint.
1: So like you know when we talk about neuroscience we look at some some of the very like quintessential kind of processes like you know which which are fundamental to it. One of the one of those is memory right I mean like the, the, the primate brain or like million brain it is like fascinating because we have the ability to learn. And when we think about trauma, what we see is like a very unique kind of manifestation of this memory that, you know, people, individuals, or sometimes even communities, they undergo trauma, and it seems like, you know, the trauma leaves a signature. And then it can be, you know, it's, it's as if we are learning how to be helpless, we are learning how to be in a, in a traumatic situation. And then at the same time, like, you know, the way it is affecting our factual understanding of the traumatic event can sometimes be even dampened, you know. So like, you know, when we look at people with PTSD, they recall the traumatic experience. You know, unfortunately, they relive the trauma many times, even when the traumatic exposure is over. But at the same time, when you ask them about, you know, what was actually happening at a, from a factual point of view around the traumatic event, they have what we call traumatic amnesia. So it seems like their rational memories are somewhat getting suppressed and the emotional memories are getting enhanced, and that causes a lot of suffering. So if we think about it, again, it shows that, you know, there are different parts of the brain, you know, with emotional regulation, with regulation of memory, and then some parts of the brain affect other body systems through hormonal input or neurotransmitter input. It seems all of those are being affected by this single exposure, you know, which, again, like I said, could be at an individual level or could be at a whole
0: you talked about really looking at this as a holistic picture. Could you talk a little bit about the research that you have been doing in, you know, what has been called epigenetics, looking at intergenerational trauma. What is that from a, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint? And then how does that impact and how does that play out in the lives of humans in everyday interaction?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So to put it simply, like, you know, like if we if we go into more like high school level biology, so we all know that there is a genetic code, right? Which are these four alphabets, which is common, you know, among all living beings. And then the way this code actually manifests into things like behavior, into things like, you know, appearance, into things like you know, everything which we do is based on eventually the proteins which we have. So in between those, that GN, uh, DNA code and the proteins, there are many layers of regulation, and the nature has kept the system like you know, very malleable, that in those regulatory layers, different exposures, be it environmental exposure or life experiences, can shape how eventually those proteins would be expressed and how they would perform their function. So this is what epigenetics is. It is something in which not the DNA code is altered, but actually the way it is eventually expressed and eventually how the proteins perform their functions is altered. And because that is the basis of practically everything we do, in the end it can have like huge consequences in terms of health, in terms of behavior, in terms of even like you know, transmission to next generations. So what we have learned, I would say, in the last couple of decades is that experiences early in life, both positive and negative can have an impact which not only determines the susceptibilities in adulthood, but even can affect, you know, the behavior or the health, both physical and mental health of the next generation. And this is what we call intergenerational inheritance, you know, or epigenetic inheritance. Now, in the context of trauma, we definitely know that trauma can also lead to this kind of inheritance kind of non-conventional heredity but at the same time trauma is something very complex because of course the transmission is not only through this you know epigenetic and biological mechanism but also it can affect how for example parents you know they, 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 they raise their children so there could also be this psychosocial transmission then what we have also found out is that Again, like, you know, traumatic events, they leave their signatures everywhere. You know, so we, we have also conducted a study in which we found out that um, mothers who are stressed, they have like, you know, an atypical composition of the milk. So even trauma can be passed on through this lactating mechanisms. So this is this is something which is very unique about traumatic exposures that they affect, again, like a multitude of systems. And that is why transmission can occur, like, you know, at many, through many different ways.
0: Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. This podcast is for those who are curious as to what it is about humans that makes peace so appealing, yet so elusive. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the Mary Hoke Center for Reconciliation at George Mason University's Carter School of Peace and Conflict Resolution. I'm your host, Colette Roush, and today we're going to talk about intergenerational trauma, the neuroscience research around it, its impact on families and society, and the neuroscience research on its transmission and potential ways to address its impact. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Jawad. Ali Jawad is a senior group leader at the Center for Neuroplasticity and Brain Disorders at the Nanke Institute in Warsaw, Poland. He is heading the research group, Translational Research and Neuropsychiatric Disorders, or called the Trend Lab for short. He is also an adjunct professor of neurology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas. He is a medical doctor and has a PhD with training in both clinical and basic neuroscience, an alumnus of Aga Khan University in Pakistan, Baylor College of Medicine in the US, and the University of Zurich in Switzerland. His research focuses on the interplay between epigenetic and metabolic factors in pathogenesis and inheritance of brain disorders. Absolutely.
1: So, in case of intergenerational trauma, we again have to think that it's not only the individual who's affected, but also, like, you know, the whole community gets affected by that. And then, like, you know, it leads to some kind of transmission, which is very explicit. For example, like, you know, we know that trauma can lead to increased depression or personality disorders in the next generation. I mean, there is a lot of literature, for example, from the Holocaust survivors, um, that they found out that not only you know, the Holocaust survivors themselves have increased psychopathology, but even the offspring and even the grand offspring, mm-hmm. and in some cases, even up to three times more compared to, let's say, their non-trauma exposed compatriots, they they had higher risk of being treated for a psychiatric illness. Now, like, what we also have to consider is that, as as I mentioned, trauma leads to this memory, and this can be transmitted within the members of the family, right? So imagine, like, you know, if the grandparent underwent something traumatic. Now, there is, of course, a biological element of that transmission, which would have led to increased susceptibility to depression. But then also there would be a constant reinforcement in terms of how they share their experiences or how they they pass on their insecurities, right? And now you also have to think about how the environment in in the periphery is responding to that. Now, if we go into, for example, um, uh, trauma faced by, um, let's say, uh, like colored races, right? Now, what we know is that there have been certain biological consequences of it that we do know that, you know, because of this intergenerational trauma going on for several generations, there are increased susceptibilities to some metabolic disorders in, in colored individuals, right? Now, imagine someone who has been taunted for appearance and now has a risk of like let's say being overweight now that is a combination of different insecurities different biological susceptibilities and when it comes together it can actually deter and compromise on the integrity of an individual and the whole community and i think this is something which we need to look at at many you know in a, in a very holistic way because Again, like I mentioned, there are susceptibilities which are transmitted, there are insecurities which are transmitted, and then there is a society which is not being aware of it sometimes and sometimes even on purpose are targeting those particular traits.
0: And so that then would feed into relationships and how individuals or communities or, you know, people with certain traits get along or don't get along.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and thereby I'll mention like you know something which we have learned from rodent models that, for example, when we you know put mice together in a cage, they immediately form this like you know hierarchical system in which one mouse becomes dominant and then one mouse like, you know becomes sort of recessive. Now, in a lot of cases, this can go on because this instead of becoming something which is dominant and recessive, it can turn into a leader and a follower. And then it's absolutely fine. Community can survive in which there is a leader and has some followers. But what we see that trauma actually affects this formation of community as well. Because if there is an extreme of traumatic exposure in the in the recessive mouse, Mm -hmm. then it would become like you know, completely, I would say non-compliant, not exactly aggressive, but would not be able to fit in socially you know, the social interactions go down, the, the ability to live in this community structure would be impaired. And because of that, it would only increase to further cycles of violence, further cycles of aggression from the other sides. So definitely it is affecting, you know, this formation of community, and that is how relationships get affected as well. Now, if we go into humans, what we do know is that relationship conflicts, you know, cases of domestic violence they can also be higher in these communities which have been traumatized externally. And because the sensitivities can become like, you know, very prominent, even for example, like, you know, again, going back to this racial trauma, sometimes the sensitivities can be higher because of past experiences and even acts of microaggression can leave a stronger impact.
0: So when you talk about microaggression, racial trauma, and from the outside, how certain groups of people, depending upon their characteristics, may be treated in a way that then can have a traumatic effect. Mm -hmm. So when we look at um, the dynamics of how one operates, you're talking really about two things. One is within the individual looking at it holistically, because we're really looking at biological, psychosocial, in the environment in which we're living, how people pass along either biologically or just by behavior certain things that then are not always helpful for cutting the the trauma effect but you're also talking about externally there needs to be that needs to structurally be looked at also because even if the individual and the family is doing which is important what they can do and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute that they can do to to try to prevent the trauma or as long as there's that external component then that's still going to be in the system, so to speak, of society. Is that what you're talking about? That it's an inside and an outside job, so to speak? Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, there there are factors with, you know, which are involved externally as well as internally. And like the internal factors, as you as you very rightly mentioned, they they can be controlled, right? I mean, like for example, an individual who has experienced trauma, you know, can undergo therapy to lessen the impact. If we talk about this epigenetic transmission, they can undergo this preconception evaluation to see um, you know, if there are changes in their, in their germ cells, which could lead to susceptibilities in the offspring. So there are definitely things which can be done at the individual level. But at the level of the society, I mean, unless this external insult, as, as I would call it, unless this external insult is stopped, then you know this cycle can just you know it could just keep on getting perpetuated, because the external stimuli they will bring up you know it's like to put it in like a very layman terminology it's like rubbing salts on the wounds. You are not allowing the wounds to actually heal, and if they keep on like seeping, it's just like one trauma getting added onto another one.
0: You had written about in the book chapter in the neuroscience and peace building. Manuscript that we worked on together, and we talked about um, some of the research. You talked about some of the things, the windows of opportunity. You talked a little bit about some work that you had done in a refugee camp. So a lot of the things that you're talking about, one might say, "Wow, we're doomed. We're, we're doomed as a human species because the cycles of trauma, biologically, you know, socially, and inside outside just keeps churning and churning." But you mentioned just a few minutes ago that there are some interventions that can be helpful. Can you talk a little bit about what you experienced either through research or practice, or what you what you found are some of the things in the periods that are that are most helpful that, that can be done, at least as we talked about at the individual and the immediate family level?-
1: Right. so at the, at the individual and at the smaller community level, one intervention for which we do have scientific evidence now. One intervention which could be helpful is environmental enrichment. So this is environmental enrichment. You know, it's it's a very broad term, but like if I simplify it, it it's it's basically giving giving a nurturing environment to the individual who has been exposed to trauma. Now that nurturing could be, for example, uh, in cases of children who lost their parents, it can be in the in the form of like foster therapy. In in cases of like you know people who have been abused again, it could be in the form of like you know them receiving, you know like positive psychological based interventions. In terms of like communities which have undergone a traumatic event, it could be putting them in a place where they feel safe. And in all of those, it has to be combined with the possibilities for multimodality cognitive stimulation. So I would say, for example, it would be being in an environment where you are heard where you are taught about positivity where you see from your eyes like you know positive environment like you know where you feel secure where you're given like food which you enjoy so if you have this multimodality stimulation it would definitely lessen the impact and what we do know from animal studies is that um, even this epigenetic inheritance it can be partially reversed through this environment enrichment. So in animals, what we do is that, you know, we turn the cages of mice who have been exposed um, to, to a trauma before into these little playgrounds where they play certain games, they are rewarded for it. So again, it's giving them a positive nurturing environment. And then we see that the impact of trauma definitely gets partially reversed.
0: Okay. And some of your experiences, could you talk a little bit about the work that you had done in refugee camps, and I know part of that time-wise was before you were really delving into the deeper research related to neuroscience. And so I'm just curious about the story about that, you know, what, what you were experiencing and how in a way did that lead to, to more research and how, what you know now, how, how might that inform some of the work that you know, we might do with refugee populations or communities that have suffered in a way that has caused traumatic effects internally and then very likely continued externally?
1: So so I collaborated with the, with the SOS Children's Village. It's a, it's a global organization. They're doing remarkable work in helping children who, you know, in most cases, unfortunately, lost their parents or at least one parent or due to some other reason were separated, you know, from their parents. So... We identified a cohort of children which had undergone this experience, which, which we call PLMS, it's Paternal Loss and Maternal Separation. You know, unfortunately, these children lost their fathers. And because the mothers were not able to support raising the children on their own, they had to forcibly give them up for adoption. Now, what we saw in these children was that there were many changes, especially, you know, in their, in their metabolism, which were then impacting their general pathophysiology, and then at, this, at the at the next level, what we did was to to look at an adult cohort um, where we had like you know um, young men of, of you know like reproductive age group, and then we looked at their germline, um, and what we found out was that there were changes again in their germ cells, which were correlated with their traumatic experiences early in childhood. So the first thing which it taught us was that actually there are these biological mechanisms operating at human level after trauma. Um, Now the second thing which we learned is that there is an interplay of metabolism in this whole thing. So what that means is that by altering their metabolism, we have a possibility to perhaps reverse these changes at the germline level, which would then prevent the transmission to the next generation. So in that, we, we do have like a couple of positive things. You know, I know that whenever I talk about this topic, it only leads to like, you know, a little bit of hue and cry, but there are, you know, some positive elements which we have identified as well. And one of them is the association between trauma and HDL levels. So what we see is that um, in case of these children, when we supplement them with omega-3, we bring their HDL, which is, you know, the good cholesterol in the body up then we see that their depression scores start going down. And now what we also want to examine is whether this would also manifest in terms of removing or correcting these, you know, let's say dad signatures at the germline level. And if we are able to prove that, then it would definitely give us a therapeutic uh, opportunity to not only help individuals who have undergone trauma themselves, but even help out their next generation through that.
0: So there's hope of um, finding modalities to help prevent or ideally stop the transmission that might continue, at least in the biological vehicle. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think there's definitely hope to, I would say, like stopping perhaps would be a very bold claim. I do not want to make this, but I think definitely we will be able to at least partially remove some of that transmission.
0: Yeah, No. that... Um, that would be that would be something that would make a difference even if it was at some level of preventing as you mentioned even if it's not possible to completely stop everything there's the hope of some sort of change so is there have you found that it matters the potential for changing the dynamics from one generation to another and having interventions that might help you know, facilitate that? Does it matter the age of the person when, when intervention or support or care or the multiple approaches you talked about take place? Absolutely. So,
1: you know, so there are different periods of sensitivities um, in our life, you know, and nature has designed it in this way because, again, you know, nature wants us to learn and adapt to the situations. So, for example, like, you know, our brain... Is way more susceptible, you know, to any kind of nurturing in the beginning of life than there is again a period of sensitivity during adolescence, and that is where harmful exposures can leave a bigger impact, and that is also where corrective regimes can be also most beneficial. So there is a huge importance of early intervention, you know. So again, like you know, what we need to do. Um, know like in in our schools and the clinics is to have this high level of sensitivity and special screening procedures in which we can identify vulnerable populations you know so for example like you know when we go to a doctor they always take like a very clear history of genetics right I mean if you go for screening for diabetes they would ask you whether there was like diabetes in your family etc etc but I think what we also need to include in those history is The history of exposures, you know, if they also check whether the parents or that individual underwent something traumatic before, then they would have a clear idea that there are certain susceptibilities, which then they could confirm and then start the interventions early. And similarly, for example, talking about this, this HDL thing, you know, the good cholesterol thing, if that is a potential mechanism, then of course, we can start corrective regimes early in those individuals again like we have to find therapies like omega 3 which which is like you know least harmful and actually you know can be taken as a supplement by by anyone who's concerned about health and those corrective regimes would then like you know lessen the negative signatures which they are carrying because of the traumatic events and then also remove this transmission of further susceptibilities now if we have like a holistic way of detecting and intervening early then of course we'll be able to make a bigger impact.
0: When you talk about early um, intervention, and then you talked about the next period during adolescence, what age ranges are you talking about?
1: So there is the period of like adolescence. And even during that, you know, there is this period where, you know, we call it the slow growth period. It is between nine to 11 years for girls. And it is between like, I would say 12 to around about 15, depends on you know, like whether you're Caucasian or not, but it is roughly that period, that is where the susceptibilities are pretty high. And that is again where, you know, the the benefits of an intervention would be pretty high as well. So I think these are the age ranges which we need to keep in mind. Then again, like you know, the the if we just think about like a certain cutoff period that I think I think any intervention before the age of seventeen, you know, it will be very crucial when we think about definitely the biological epigenetic inheritance component, because this is where the germ cells are being formed and they're being refined. You know, this is where we achieve our, let's say, reproductive capability, you know, and and that is where any intervention, positive or negative, would have like a much stronger impact.
0: You mentioned um, the adolescent periods. Is there a corresponding early childhood period or... Is it mainly just the adolescent periods that are the most, most important?
1: So a lot of times what we know is that whatever happens also in early childhood can then impact on the susceptibility to stressful experiences which, which can occur in early adulthood or adolescence. You know, so there is this two-hit theory that if there is trauma early in life, then the susceptibility to be affected by trauma, you know, a little later in life would be much higher. So this is where, like, you know, it's very important, then, of course, to also focus on this period during early childhood. I think at this point, like, you know, from the evidence I've seen, that has not been defined. Mm-hmm. But what I could speculate it's, is that, like, you know, the formative years, like, you know, up to, like, the first five years, they could be very crucial, uh, for sure. Because for some of this time, also, you know, the the stem cells in the brain, which we have, which, which lead to formation of neurons. They're very active. Again, some parts of the brain can be more vulnerable because they are not completely covered by you know, We have this sheath called myelin. It's like a protective sheet that is not fully formed. So again, I think this time could be like very uh, crucial. Okay.
0: And I appreciate very much what you're talking about earlier, that ideally there would be a screening that would look at matters that could have contributed to a traumatic effect that is occurring with the individual, what, if you were able to write the ideal vision of how the the work that you and your colleagues are doing in this field, and you were to create that and make it be, what would that look like?
1: So, I think something like that also exists. Like, you know, at least some part of it is it is like, you know, there can be these geniograms in which we can track trauma. Like, you know, for example, like an individual goes to, you know, clinic or goes to like a setting where, you know, they are doing a health screening. Then what they could do is that similar to how they make these, you know, family diagrams and they look at like, you know, genetic disorders, they can do something similar for epigenetic exposures, you know, epigenetic exposures like trauma, like obesity, et cetera, et cetera. And then looking at that, you can form an algorithm which can then predict, okay, what is the likelihood of this person getting affected, and what are the things we need to screen for and be aware of. And then based on that, we can cover, you know, this this part of life starting from childhood till adulthood. Now, during adulthood, when that person starts thinking about having a family, then I think based on whatever we have identified, you know, from animal studies, which we have then validated into humans, there could be a testing of the germ cells, right? Now, in case of males, it would be easier because it's easier. It's more tractable to uh, to get access to, to the germ cells in case of males. So at least in those cases, you know, it can be... Like you know, their their ger- like the germ cells can be screened for these negative signatures of trauma, which are present, and then based on some of these interventions, you know, which which we have identified or semi-identified, they could undergo like you know a corrective program, right? They could undergo like you know, for example, if we see that there are these negative changes in the germ band, they could undergo like you know a program involving exercise, involving some supplementation, involving psychotherapy. For a year or two. And then only when we see that those signatures have been partially corrected, at least they can then go and have a family. Now, in cases where none of that could be achieved, we can then think of the offspring generation. Like, you know, we can look at children when they go to school, when they go to their pediatrician, you know, histories of trauma exposures in their parents could be taken into equation. And based on that, a program could be started where the susceptibilities which they have received from their parents could be again partially mitigated through interventions. So this is how I would imagine just change like the whole way you know we deal with with, with, with treating patients. And we are already doing that in case of genetics, right? I mean, we do know, for example, that now we have identified mutations which show risk, let's say for breast cancer. And in those cases, people do undergo mastectomies, even prophylactically, even before the cancer has started. So we can do something similar again at the level of this trauma exposure and epigenetics. That is, that is my vision about it.
0: Yeah, so it's normalizing this and understanding that it has a biological effect on our health, much like you know we get tested for our cholesterol levels, or as you mentioned, yeah. whether there's a breast cancer potential within our system. So normalizing it, because as you'd mentioned earlier, so much of it is connected with um, you know, the brain, the body, our genes, our health, our behavior. It's also integrated. This would be another piece of data that would help us as the other pieces that all are fitting together for our general overall health. Could you describe, um, you talked about Holocaust victims. I want to just go back to that point. Has there been research conducted in other areas where there has been violent conflict and its effect um, within intergenerational trauma context? And also you talked about you know separation of children and the profound effect, you know, refugee situations. Can you just talk a little bit about research in other conflict zones and effect on individuals and children?
1: So there has been, like, definitely there is a lot of research, a lot of psychology research about also, like, you know, this transmission of intergenerational trauma in Black Americans, uh, in Native Americans, even in uh, Native Canadians. There are a couple of studies on that. But what, what I believe is that there is still a lack of, you know, these biological mechanisms. There haven't been enough studies which have looked at these epigenetic marks and these biological mechanisms which are operating besides, you know, the obvious effects on psychology. That is where, like, you know, we, I myself, like, you know, I'm starting a couple of programs where where we will look at, you know, which component of this transmission is, you know, psychological versus which component of this transmission is actually biological. Together with some collaborators in Bosnia, uh, we have started now a study in which we are looking at you know, it's, it's actually the first study of its kind in which we are looking at two generations, not only the individuals who were directly exposed to genocide during the Bosnian-Serbian war, but also their children, because, you know, that happened in mid-90s, early to mid-90s, so a lot of these individuals have families of their own, so we will do, like, a biological assessment, which will be multi-generational. At the same time, we will look at, you know, their spousal relationships there will be like, you know, uh, a component of complete psychological transmission element versus a component of, you know, this biological transmission. So I think there are definitely many populations around the world which have experienced this intergenerational trauma. What we just need to do is to invest more into it at the academic level and find ways to support them and help them.
0: Thank you very much. And the, the last question I have relates to if you were to create an ideal group to work on these issues, because there's a, you know, you mentioned the holistic need. If you were to put together a team to conduct research or try to solve some of these challenges around the world with divisions amongst individuals, you know, poor health outcomes, cycles of violence what would that team look like and what would you focus on? If you didn't have to stay in the lane, often that, um, you know, we all have to stay in, in a field, but if you could pull together multidisciplinary approaches, what would be that team look, you know, what would that look like?
1: I think like, because trauma itself is holistic, the team would also need to be very holistic, right? So, I mean, I think we have to consider a team where there will be, you know, Neuroscientists, experts on metabolism, like, you know, uh, colleagues from psychology, medical doctors, pediatricians, reproductive health experts. But at the same time, we would need a structure which is like more supportive at like, you know, at a managerial organizational level as well. We would need support of peace builders and and, and uh, definitely lawyers. And what we also need is some kind of lobbying for such initiatives because again like you know what we need to understand is that this is not a political matter anymore this is something which is affecting you know the psychology the identity the biology of humans generation after generation so i i I hope that one day we actually have like you know big organizations like unicef UN actually devoting some effort into it or some countries taking the lead and coming forward and forming these like large units of experts who can then tackle these issues holistically and again like you know I think just the way the world is going right I mean besides COVID and climate change I think this is another very important threat which we are facing and which we need to counter.
0: Thank you very much, um, Ollie, for taking the time to speak today on the Think Peace podcast. And before we end, I wanted to just turn it over to you. And is there anything else that you would like to add to our discussion?
1: What I want to end on is this optimistic note that what this research has taught us, of course, is that trauma can lead to these negative effects across generations. But at the same time, what we need to keep in mind is that trauma is just an exposure. And there's another way of looking at it. What we can look at is that if instead of trauma, if we replaced it with something more positive, be it access to good holistic education, be it access to something which is at the interface of being educational and being spiritual and being good for your body and mind, then that would also have an effect which would not only shape our health, but also the health of our generations, And this is this is how I want to look into it, that we have identified something, of course, unfortunate, but we can just think that if that exposure could be replaced with, with something positive, then the outcome would also be something very positive.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ali. That was very powerful, the aspect of hope and that there are things that we can do. And I, I love that, taking the positive and in essence, rewiring in some way, the exposures that may have been negative. So I I really appreciate that vision. And I hope that hope that to come um, forward in in the in the near future. So thank you again. And um, again, thank you for joining Peace Podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.